Welcome to the Uninformed Handball Hour. We are in the middle of a torrent of handball and today we'll be speaking about Men's Champions League, Women's Champions League, European League, sacking of coaches and everything in between. I'm joined by Chris O'Reilly. Hello Alex. And Brian Campion. Hello there. I think you forgot Alex, uh, probably the most important aspect of today's podcast. It's going to take up 30 minutes of the podcast and that's going to be... And that's going to be our interview with Sandra Toft. Chris, you, you did this interview originally for the This Is Me um, series on EHFCL, huh? Yeah, exactly. I spoke to her about a month ago. So just before the playoff game against her former club, Esbjerg. And yeah, it was for a long form kind of first person perspective of moments that changed her as a person and as a player and the the chat itself was really cool so uh, thankfully we got the clearance to use the audio so hopefully uh, many of you have read the piece already but I think the audio itself is on its own a very interesting chat and yeah she's very open about uh, some very turbulent moments in her career as well as some really good ones so it's uh, definitely a fascinating listen if I do say so myself. <laughs> I'm not uh, I'm not um, bootlicking anyone here now but I do think that those this is me uh, articles are genuinely some of the better things I've read in, in handball in a good while now. Like, you know, I really like the, the background they give you. Um, maybe I just feel like they're, they can be spread out a little bit more. I feel like I've just read one and already like, oh, tomorrow is this one. You're like, oh Christ. Yeah. I just I emotionally got over that last one. And, uh, cause you know, they, t- they tell quite the story, like, you know, but I do like them a lot. Yeah. Especially that Camilla Michevich episode as well. That was, uh, fascinating. Oh, the video one. Yeah. The video oh, one. Good. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a nice mix. I didn't know half those details, to be honest. Yeah, I had no idea that she, yeah, came from a war-torn country. And um, yeah, I suppose you just ignore it with the character that she is. But um, it's really interesting to see how she overcame it and um, is still overcoming troubles. Yeah, definitely worth a watch if anyone hasn't seen it yet on the was the Home of Handball YouTube channel, Kimila Michievich's upbringing. And Mostar itself is a fascinating city, so definitely worth a, a watch. Let's, before we go into the interview with Sandra, talk about the the Champions League and uh, starting with the men. And we previewed a little bit in the previous podcast. Uh, Three games, I think, are still pretty much open of the eight last 16 games. But probably the biggest surprise was just how convincingly Kiel won in Seged. Was that a surprise? Well, you thought it was so hard to call last week, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) You were saying, I literally can't call it. And then, uh, you know, a few days later, Kiel won by five in the end, but they they were winning by, what, nine at one point? Yeah, definitely. And actually, Seged had a chance to maybe keep it within two or three at the end they really uh, they missed quite a few shots in that last moment where where they made the push to come back but it was it was too late it didn't surprise me after i watched 10 minutes of that game and zegged just looked terrible that 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 was it basically zegged are just not the team that uh, they were last year and keel i was a little bit surprised that they bounced back so easily but it's it's really nice to see sagasin really taking uh, control of the team now he actually he has three quint doubles in a row now averaging eight goals and six assists over the last three games which is huge and he's taking a lot of shots he's averaging like 14 shots but i think they need it they need that, hey, that that's that's what i was going to ask is it acceptable because it's kind of like the only player i can kind of compare his shooting frequency to and percentage-wise, is Christina Niagu. So in that game against Seged, he took 16 shots, scored eight of them. Is 50% in a situation like that acceptable, do you think? Like, is it just the role he's taken on the team and, and you can live with eight missed shots as long as he scores eight of them? Yeah, I think absolutely, because usually if you're comparing Sagasen to Norway Sagasen as well, you just have to count out all of the penalties. So in a game, he'll go four from four from penalty and then... That match, which uh, instead of eight goals from 16 shots, it becomes 12 goals from 20 
and then you're like okay this is a really good performance but isolating his like field shooting he's again across those three games he's shooting 60 percent and if you have your best player shooting 60 percent from the court you are more than likely going to win although they didn't win against uh flensburg but still (laughs) (laughs) but that was the game where he took the least shots so um but i like the fact that they are getting him those shots i think at the start he was just trying to fit into the team they had so many big players you know you still have duvniak you have um zarabets you have all the shooters around and it felt like they struggled to get him get him the shots but now he's just doing what he does best and i think he's gonna have games where he shoots 50 percent, but he's gonna have enough games where he shoots 70 80 percent. and if he does that and takes 16 shots keel are gonna win yeah, because there was a lot of talk when the science saga said about would he work with Dovniak and Zarabets and the likes of that in the backcourt. But you think it's starting to really click now, huh? Yes, and no, I, th- I think it's personally Sagasen has just come back. And I think after that quarantine where he was pent up for a month in, in his apartment, he was just like, fuck this, I'm, I'm going in and I'm going to take every shot. I think that's the way that Keel, you know, can maximize him. There's no point of just f- trying to fit him in. And if that means that Zarabets and Duvniak aren't taking as many shots, I think you live with that because you have the best player in the world. Philip, he has said about that first half that um, in, in an interview that I read, he said that that was the best 30 minutes of handball he's ever seen the, his TV team playing. I don't know if you'd agree with that, but that, I thought that was interesting. He said that was the best 30 minutes he's seen from them, that first half against Zagat. Considering that's the same team that was the last season, they restricted Vardar to three goals or four goals in the first half uh, in Skopje. That was <laughs> that's pretty impressive to say. But yeah, scoring twenty-one goals away from home uh, against Seged, definitely, I guess, attacking-wise, the the most impressive we've seen them. And when you when you're scoring as many goals as that, uh, you're not really bothered about conceding thirteen because you're going to win the game anyway. Mm, I think this is probably the part of the season that I think I've realized that you really do now notice that the fans aren't there as much because for these knockout games you can really feel like the, the gaps between some of the teams like you know they're I mean you, you expect certain teams to win but just some of the games just completely blown up and I think maybe that's where fans in those knockout games and the big build-up would have made a bit of a difference like you know and I think it's kind of a lot of the games were really flat I mean PSG won by 13 Barcelona won by 12 Vesper won by how many was it? 27-41? Yeah, so like you'd imagine with full stadiums to a certain extent that a lot of those games might have been at least somewhat closer. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree with you. When they announced this last 16, initially I got really excited. I was like, oh, knockout handball. It's it's great. It's, you know, it's it's some of the funnest handball around. And then I realized that okay but with no fans it's just, it really it doesn't have that feel of a knockout game because the whole point of those um knockout games is you have a full arena cheering for one team and driving their team forward without that um it's a bit flat and i think in general that that first round of games was a bit flat i think we might be seeing this kind of onslaught of handball affecting teams and they're just they're not able to maximize their performance for 60 minutes. I don't think any team had a full 60 minute, a good 60 minutes. And it, there's always a spell in a game where there's just 20 minutes of sloppiness. Uh, hopefully, you know, hopefully it, it does build up a little bit. But at the moment, all of it is is feeling like a little bit of a slog because you have this extra game now. Teams are also kind of coming in in and out of quarantine all around so they're just not building the form that you really want them to have and yeah it, it was a little bit flat the, this round i think the game of the the round was definitely the the game that you commented on chris kielsa versus Nantes. what do you think of that in the end it was a, a very entertaining game but not 
necessarily for its top quality handball. I mean, there was some absolute madness in the first half. And there was one point I mentioned, and I, I remember it because Marcio then tweeted about it, me t- saying it's like a long tennis rally. Not a good tennis rally, me playing tennis, tennis rally. <laughs> Just like a, absolute errors all over the place, but somehow the ball stays in play uh, so, until somebody scored a goal. And I think going back to the point about the fans, that would have been an amazing atmosphere with Nantes uh, playing a big game like that at home. It's kind of how they've built their reputation. These big one-off games, match of the week at home with a a full arena. I think that would have probably given them the victory in the end. Uh, They would have been pretty disappointed, I'd say, to end up losing that game by one. They were four goals ahead at one point in the first half. Uh, Kielsa, to their credit, uh, particularly with Alex Dushabayev, who had just like another classic Alex Dushabayev game, doing a bit of everything, also setting up two Kempas, which were probably highlights in the game, dragged them into a winning position. But 24-25 and just a one-goal lead for Kielsa at home going into uh, a second leg where there is no home support, I think it could be pretty dangerous for them. I, I see this one as being very open. One of the the three very open last sixteen games alongside Porto, Alberg, and uh, Motor against Brest. Mm. It's funny when you were mention- when you were talking about Sakusen earlier, Alex. Andy Wolf came into my head there because you were saying about like he's taking these shots, and but it obviously comes down to sometimes when do you miss when do you score the shot or when do you miss the shot? If you miss your first five shots compared to missing your last five shots, is sometimes a big difference there, and. The big battle between goalkeepers between Andy Wolf and Nielsen was interesting. So Nielsen made 14 saves and Andy Wolf only made 10, but he made two penalty saves in the last 10 minutes at Wolf. So there's a massive difference there when you make your saves. And uh, I think in a lot of people's mind after that game, they were coming away. Oh, Wolf won that exchange just for when he made the saves in the last few minutes were very important. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And Wolf has been just quite inconsistent um, this season. He, you know, he's out of the talk of the best goalkeeper in the world at the moment. I don't think he's anywhere near, but he does have that ability to turn it on. And I, I think I tweeted about this saying that Kiasa really rely on Alex Ishibayev and Andy Wolf. It almost feels like the rest of the team is fillers, which is really <laughs> harsh to say because they have some really, really good players, but um, maybe they just... They don't get moving until Alex Sushibayev gets moving. But when Alex and Andy Wolf are on form at the same time, Kielsa are an amazing team. They really just up it. And that's when they made the comeback. There was a basically a, between probably the 35th minute and the 45th minute. Andy Wolf was making saves. Alex Sushibayev was doing his thing. And Kielsa looked amazing. Now let's see if they can do that for 60 minutes. And yeah. <laughs> Do you think Kielsa will win the second leg and go through? I think so. I think just about. I was surprised actually by, by how well actually uh, Nantes played because it's been very up and down the whole season long. So I, I was actually shocked by how close it was in the end. I, I thought Kielsa were going to do it by three or four. but So I was initially surprised by that, but I do think Kielsa have the better, the better team and a better star player. Well, it depends on... Kirill Lazarov, if he has another mm. incredible game. <laughs> and I don't think that's where Nantes want to be, relying on a 40-year-old. But uh, <laughs> what a 40-year-old he is. Yeah. Um, he really like willed them back uh, from that first Kielsa comeback. Um, I, I think I think Kielsa take it uh, quite easily, actually, because we've seen that Nantes have kind of one game, one really good game in them, Um during a spell so this is their good game that they didn't take advantage of and i think it'll be a fairly easy win for kiosk on the other side i, th- I think the joker in this is uh, whether Amerik mean the center back will be back or not because he's been missing for the last few weeks and that meant they only had rock ovnicek as the the playmaker for this game uh, it was working out for him in a couple of games before in the second half it just didn't work out at all for him uh, and so if they have the ability to mix it up between the two of them, I think Nott will have a chance. But definitely Kielsa uh, with the advantage there. Alex, what you're saying there about the uh, being Wolf being in the best goalkeeper of the the world kind of conversation, he's kind of left that. Do you think Benjamin Boric has taken his place in that kind of conversation? I, I think that he, he's someone who has been incredible this season, but I haven't heard much about, much hype about him. Like he doesn't really get put, I don't know if you asked um, anyone who would you rather have Perez de Vargas or Benjamin Burridge for a game tomorrow I think most people will say Perez de Vargas 
even though Burridge has been in incredible form for quite a while now, kind of stemming from last season as well. He was still very good last season. So good. He's forced Bergerud out of the Flensburg squad, basically. Sent him off to Denmark in gay. Okay. I, I, I still, yeah. Personally, I also agree that I, I, something is stopping me from uh, putting him in that conversation. He's kind of in the, let's say, 5 to 10 range for me. And I don't know why, even though he was definitely the best goalkeeper in the group stages of the Champions League this season. Maybe it's because he hasn't got like a, a trademark like a lot of goalkeepers do. His trademark is his smile, I think. But that doesn't really scare people and like <laughs> make you think, yeah, he's the best in the world. But besides that, he does everything really well. Porto Alborg is going to be match of the week this week. 32-29 in the first leg. Will Alborg turn it around? Uh, I, I don't, th- I mean, Alex is the expert here on Alborg and I, I won't say too much on it, but I, I think that they were very lucky to not have lost by more. Do you know, at that stage when they were trailing by six, I mean, it could have been so much worse for them. And when I when I just watch them from a very analytical kind of perspective, it just looks like the Porto backcourt has so much more going on for it in terms of how they just open up and uh, make use of their of the line, especially. I mean, it's incredible to think that Itarica is their top scorer uh, in the Champions League. says says a lot about how they play as a, as a team. Like you know, they really want to open up that that middle block, and they do it really really well. So I I think I think Porto should do it. I, I think it also. It feels like this is Porto's moment because there's talk of basically this team being disbanded very soon in terms of the best players getting picked off. And this is Porto's moment. This is where they can really challenge for even a final four spot. While in Alborg's mind, I think they're they're kind of okay with where they are now. Um, because they know in a couple of years that they'll make their challenge, and they've you know they've signed a couple of their players. Sebastian Barthold got that uh, contract until twenty twenty four. Still count him as the most informed winger in the world right now. <laughs> That's mainly because Hampus Vanna is not playing. <laughs> Hampus Vanna has played three games in the last like month and a half. He scored ten goals in each one. I was trying to um, I was uh, picking the players of the month, and I really wanted to put Hampus Vanna in. But he's played three games, yeah. so he he is my uh, honorary player of the month. But um, <laughs> back to Alborg, yeah, that they, I just don't think they have the stars to beat Porto, and Porto are really really good. They won without their two biggest stars in terms of Miguel Martins and Andre Gomes, both having fairly mediocre games. They just need one of them to turn up. And they were much better, much better for the first half um, and allowed Alborg back in. Brian, you said that you're not an expert on Alborg, so we'll go to a team you are an expert on next. Uh, HC Motor Zaporozhia. Oh, God. And uh, the team you have been uh, you've been backing for the last two and a half years. Uh, it beat, beat Meshkov Brest uh, 32-30 in the first leg. Uh, this is the one game where there are fans home and away, which is great. Uh, will they hold on in the cauldron of Belarus and Brest? Ah, oh, look, I've been a, a motor fan for, oh, I'd say, about two seasons now. So I'm, I'm backing them all the way to get to the final four. So I'm not going to I'm not going to back <laughs> down now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how uh, we'll see. We'll see how well that lasts uh, with the game it's on Thursday. You share his uh, confidence, Alex? I was I was completely surprised that motor got the win. Actually, I, I really thought Meshkov rest were the better team um just in general i thought they were um going in as in like i i thought that meshkov breast were the better team going into this tie by quite a bit and motor were fairly comfortable um got a good win scuba didn't have the best game for meshkov breast so maybe that's what they need to turn it around but that's the one game i think that I can't predict at the moment. And I'm, for some reason, leading towards Motor Zaporozhye. Me too. Maybe it's all the hype. <laughs> I, I'm, getting, I'm, I'm beginning to get a feeling that Meshkov Brest, as they become better, are going to turn into the FTC of men's handball. That's a good uh, shout. More on that, more on that, if and when it happens. <laughs> That's all from the, the men's side. Before we go into the chat with Sandra, let's have a look over the the first leg games in the women's Champions League. There was only three of them over the weekend. Uh, two of them were absolute hammerings with uh, Jura beating Budachnost 30-19 away from home. 
and Brest beating Mets 34-24 with uh, Sandra Toft uh, having an amazing first half where at one point she had six saves from eight shots ended up with I think 45% saving rate Cleopatra Darlow was in for the second half was equally good and Anna Gross absolutely dominated with 10 goals from 11 shots the closest game though was CSM Bucharesti against CSKA yeah CSM won by five in the end 32 27 but they were leading by nine at one point and yeah really let it slip a little bit CSK got within four and five goals yeah it's it's not an easy one to turn around but CSK will have uh, a home crowd with them and they managed to turn around a five goal deficit in the uh, previous round do you reckon they'll do it this time I was surprised. I read somewhere that CSK are going to need a miracle comeback. And I was like, a miracle comeback? It's only, it's only five goals. And you're talking about CSM Bucharesti, the absolute queens of making life difficult for themselves. So I don't, I don't see, uh, the gap being that big, you know? I mean, by next week, CSM might have had gone through two, two new coaches. God knows what'll happen, you know? So, uh, <laughs> you can never, you can never bank on too much with CSM, but, uh, I, I see that. I, I see that one is kind of still quite wide open. You know, as you said, CSM have already dropped a massive lead against SCM in their in their playoff match. The CSK have, have a, came back against five against Krim, which obviously are different quality of opponents. But I, I see that, I see that one is still quite wide open. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw six uh, two to, to CSK after after eight minutes or something like that. Five goals from Daria Dimitrieva and just like dragging the team exactly. To be honest, I don't think CSK are the same team with it without um, Mikhailichenko. Mm. They're good. They're still a good team, but they're not the team that at the start of the Champions League were looking really, really dangerous and were playing amazing handball. I think they're, they're just missing her badly. And CSM, well, Niagu is probably going to have a better game. Uh, that, that's one thing that's not 100% sure, but if she doesn't shoot six from 16, I think they, they have another st- notch to go up. Yeah, I, I think CSM take it. So potentially CSM or CSK going through. Uh, Jura definitely gone through. Brest almost definitely going through as well. And uh, Vipers Rostov is going to be a double header Saturday and Sunday <laughs> in Rostov. Uh, Vipers playing basically their whole season away from home <laughs> since like October. And if they manage to pull this off, it'll be one of the most like astounding Champions League seasons of all time. Do they, uh, I was going to say, do they have a chance? They always have a chance with, you know, the likes of Katrina Lunda and if Nora Merck is back playing fit. But uh, will they pull it off? I don't know. It's a lot. It's a lot of handball, a lot of knockout handball in two days. And uh, I don't know. I, 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 my picks would be Bucharesti probably to win, to win by one, uh, Rostov, and then obviously then Gura and, and Brest will be the, the final four teams. I don't know. It's, just, it's been a very disjointed season for, for Vipers, which I mean, could, could galvanize them and bring them together. But I think Rostov have, have looked better over more games, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I think Vipers are the fourth best team left in the competition right now. Unfortunately, they're playing the third best team uh, in the competition. <laughs> Second or third best team in the competition. So uh, I would have liked to see the final four of having Cure, uh, Vipers, Rostov and Brest because I think they're best teams. But in, in this case, with the, yeah, two games in two days, Rostov, home crowd, I think that they'll take it. Um, it's too much of a disadvantage for Vipers to overcome, I think. But just one thing I want to say quickly about one of the other games was I was I watched the first uh, about 20 minutes of um, Budichnos versus Gyor and I was like, God, this is going to be a great game, 10-12. And then I had to go out somewhere, so I turned it off and I checked the result then 19-30. I was like, God, Gyor have this ability in the second half just to completely destroy teams and it's it's such a tease you think this is gonna be a great game and then it's not even a game anymore and uh it's i don't know i just it, it's kind of a, a little bit infuriating like you know <laughs> yeah they, they they've just strolled through this champions league but through the knockout stages i don't know i i had some doubts i was like okay this is the year there's you know breast have taken points off them you know they they've had to scramble for victories this is the year and they've won 
their three games cumulatively by like 50 goals mm. <laughs> it is nonsense awesome. but i do i do think if anyone is going to beat them probably would be breast you know powered by our next guest sandra toft oh what a great segue thank you brian yeah. oh, thank you. beautiful stuff so yeah let's let's go into the chat with sandra toft as we mentioned before uh, this was for an article based on her own experiences in life the biggest moments on and off the court that have shaped her and turned her into the player she is today so enjoy When you heard about the the concept then and the idea of choosing some of these moments in your life, uh, what came into your head, first of all? Yeah, first of all, uh, the first thing that came into my head was my car crash. Uh, (laughs) This will always follow me, but also I told that story so many times, but it was also a really impactful moment (laughs) in my life. Yeah, I know it was uh, 2009, right? You're on on your way home from your sister's birthday party. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I've seen you tell the story a lot in, in like Danish media and stuff like that, but not so much in the in the English speaking world. So I think, although a lot of people would know you very well from your handball playing, may not know too much about the the crash and and the impact it had on you. So if you're comfortable talking about it, maybe you can uh, can tell me a bit about it. Yes, but as you said, I was on my way home from my sister's birthday and uh, I was playing in Holstebro at that time. So it was uh, quite a long uh, drive, but uh, uh, I was driving and then suddenly uh, my car was doing spinning and then I uh, my car went off the road and there was uh, like a hill. So the car was rolling with me like, uh, I don't know, 60 meters and then uh, this I don't remember, but Mm. I was told, and then I woke up uh, at the field, and the car was like upside down, and I was uh, half of my body was outside the window and under the car, and my legs wow. was inside the the car. Wow! And you were just a baby at the time. Yeah, I was really young, and it was in the middle of the night. I think 10 p.m. in the night, in in the middle of nowhere. But uh, I was lucky that there was one car. We were maybe two cars on the whole world, <laughs> world oh. and uh, he was behind me and saw what happened. So he was there and he couldn't do anything because, but he could call 911, of course. And they came and drove me to the hospital and I broke my neck and uh, both arms. It was super close to more permanent damage as well. Was it like five centimeters? Five uh, millimeters. Millimeters. Oh my goodness. Wow. Because I had to stay at the hospital for for a while because apparently this fracture, it can move a little. I don't know what the doctor said because it was so short from the nerves. So five millimeters more to the right and I will be paralyzed from the neck and down this fracture. Uh, But five months later or so, you were back playing competitively again i mean what was that process like uh for you and I, I, how long did i mean after that how long did you start thinking about handball again because obviously there there are more urgent and important things on your mind or was 19 year old sandra toft like oh can i get back on court yeah but that was actually my first question to the doctor the the next day <laughs> when can i like, can i play handball again and first day he was like, nah, I don't know, maybe. And I was like, no, no, I have to play handball again. So what was that process like to to get yourself back playing again? Because, well, two two broken arms uh, as well. That's, uh, yeah. Or was it, I guess, a case, a case of waiting uh, at first and letting the body heal? Yes, I had to wait. Uh, I couldn't do anything. It was uh, a different kind of pain than any other injuries you I had. Uh, it was really painful, but I had to wait to the fracture in the neck because I had this thing, you know, around the neck. I had to wait to get this off also. But I also think maybe I started a, a little early after I got this off. But uh, my coach, he, he couldn't keep me as a, he knew that that. It would not be possible for him to say, no, you have to, to wait longer. Because when you, when I was this close to losing handball and just be active, then the first thing I wanted to do was to, to think. Do you remember what was going through your mind then when you finally got to go back on court? Yeah, I remember, first of all, the other girls laughed because I was running like I still had uh, <laughs> this on. You know? 
but it was a, a huge relief and I was not afraid not for the shoot in the head you know nothing mm. it was just really really nice to be back and I had to come back in shape because when you don't do anything for so long then it's difficult to come back but it, I was able to so 12 years since that happened now almost back in 2009 what kind of uh impact do you think that has had on your perspective on, on not just life but also on handball and for sure my um, how to say you know my love for handball grow a lot that moment and to just the small things in handball to enjoy every moment and to give maximum every time and i think also i started more to play with my emotion and my passion because i i was just really really happy to be able to to play handball do you remember the, the first game or the first training session where you thought, okay, now I'm I'm back to where I was before or now I'm back to being the goalkeeper I know I am? Yes, I, clearly, because I remember when it happened, we just go from um, to the best division, you know? Mm. We were a young team, so we went from second division to the best. So mm. that season we had to play against the best in Denmark. So that was also a motivation to to come back early because this is what we worked for 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 one year and we had to play again FC Copenhagen when this team was and it was with Leganga Cecilia Leganga and Rigel Hood played there and all these big stars and I played really 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 good <laughs> this game and I was so proud because Cecilia Leganga she came to me after and like clapped me on the shoulder and said I did a good job and she was impressed that what had just happened to me and now I saved all these uh, shoots. That's a wonderful story and I'm, I'm glad that you're able you feel like you're able to, to talk about it as well I mean I guess is that something that over time and being able to talk about it has, has grown or has it just been something you've always taken ownership of? Yeah it's never been difficult to talk about I think in the beginning it helped me a lot to to talk about it actually and now it's just been a part of me and I also have a tattoo about it just that uh, I have to be uh, thankful and there was someone there to protect me in this moment uh, this, I mean that's an incredible story to start with I don't know where we go from there in terms of <laughs> shaped your life but uh, there's been so many on-court memories that you've had as well but before we we go into that I think at least from an outsider's perspective it seems that your dealing with uh, concussions has also been a, a big part of your uh, during your rise to the international prominence and how you've had to deal with that and I mean is that something that you you feel has shaped you at all as well yes and no I had some concussions uh, some few small ones and then one really big one I don't really think so much about it it's a part of being a goalkeeper now unfortunately and uh, it's of course really dangerous but if you put too much uh, thought about it, then I think it yeah, make it difficult to to be yourself in the goal if you're thinking about uh, the head, shooting the head because there's more and more and the people are shooting stronger and stronger. So of course there will be more concussions. And But it was a, a dark period when I had this big concussion. Do you feel like the handball world is a bit behind in dealing with this kind of thing? Because I know it's a big issue uh, in, in sports, like for example in rugby, uh, also in American sports with heavy uh, collisions but in in handball it is a, particularly for goalkeepers it is a big part as well and uh, and maybe the care and the the study around it needs to improve a little bit yes uh, of course i think handball can do a lot more but it's a difficult injury to to handle i also think there's a lot of focus on it now and we also have to be careful not to be too careful to think concussions every time uh, you get the ball in the head i always hand in the head but of course handball can learn a lot from rugby on american football and ice hockey where they have more uh, focus on it and maybe they're better in the the treatment but the handball world is moving fast as a boy men's and women are getting stronger and bigger and <laughs> it should shoot so much stronger than in, when i started to be a goalkeeper and the handball itself changed that they get the better grip on the, the ball. So, yeah, it's getting more difficult to be a goalkeeper and more dangerous, but it's a part of the game. But it, ha it hasn't changed your perspective at all. I mean, you still use whatever body part you can to stop the ball. Yes, a save is a save, right? Exactly. <laughs> and let's talk about some maybe happier things then, or at on-court moments or on-court games that you've felt have changed your life somewhat. Yeah, I think uh, 
my change to Larvik changed uh, actually whole my the whole my career. I was uh, not thinking about quitting, but I had it in my mind before I signed with, with Larvik because I've been through many injuries, uh, seven injuries in my knee at that moment before I moved to Larvik, and it was not getting anywhere, and I couldn't stay in Holstebrook. And then one day Larvik called, and I was a little bit in shock because I couldn't understand why why this team of uh, stars <laughs> what they wanted to do with me. But I took the challenge and they said uh, that they could help me with my knee also and get me to be a top goalkeeper. So I took the chance and my move there was like in uh, in level. So this uh, changed my my career. Did you have seven surgeries on the knees? Yes. On the same knee or both? The same. same. Okay. And and this this puts you in a mindset then. So you're with Holstebro still. Uh, so you've been in Denmark your entire career. You felt like that maybe it just wasn't going to work out. Yeah, maybe I just wouldn't, wouldn't fulfill my my dreams and fulfill my, my talent. And But then I moved to Lavik and I knock, knock, knock and never have problems since with the knees. It changed everything, the way they trained up there and uh, they took care of the, the body and they had really good the physical coaches and the training, handball training was uh, it was crazy for, for me to suddenly be on the same team with the, the superstars of them. Mm. Yeah, and it, it showed straight away. I mean, uh, you, so you joined in 2014 and that season, got all the way to the, the final four, got to the final and you were the all-star goalkeeper <laughs> yeah. in that season. The, you felt the rise was just straight up that season in every aspect. I mean, you said about the health there, but also what made a difference in terms of performance for you? Yeah, but it was it was really strange because it was from the first day off, I called home and said that I, I, I didn't have pain when I did my trainings and mm. The girls were so nice, and I remember I was so, so shy in the beginning. And I felt like every training I had to do my best to show that uh, that I belong in, in this team. I felt that if I had to play with them, Kohama Singedin, uh, Nora Mark, all these girls, that I have to live up to something, you know? So every training, I it was like a final for, for me in the beginning to, to show what I was able to do in the goal, and they were so supportive. and. The only thing they said in the beginning was that I could yell a little bit at the defense when I when they didn't do their job, and my answer was like, "No, but you're so good." So, <laughs> <laughs> who am I to say? <laughs> yeah, so they they taught me a little bit to set demand to to, to the defense also, and yeah, it was just uh, the first year there was a, a dream. We played really good, and uh, I yeah, as I said, my level did like this, so. With the support from them, and when you train with really good players, then you also get uh, better. How was it with Danish and Norwegian? Because I'm always intrigued by the the similarities, but and and the differences between the two. I was so happy that the, this season also uh, Alina Wojtas, the Polish mm. girl, she signed in Lavik, so there was a little bit of English <laughs> because nice. the first month I didn't understand anything then you adapt to it because it's similar to Danish. It's just some few difference and the accents is totally different. But now, and then I understood everything after that. But in the beginning, I was happy that there was a girl who needed some English also. Okay, so she was like your excuse then to, no, come on, girls, we have to speak in English here, you know, for us. <laughs> okay, tell us more about that time in Larvik because, I mean, it, it's it's such a tragedy what has happened to the club in, in recent years. but uh, And it was so recent, back in 2015, your first season, that they went all the way to the final four. And you had two more years there, right? Yes. Yeah. I moved back into Denmark in 17, yeah. Was that was coinciding then with the financial troubles? Do you think, or do you think that was a natural end for you? Uh, both things actually. Uh, the economic was going this way at the club, and you could see a little bit what uh, was going to happen. And then I also just felt that I, I needed to go back for a few years in, in Denmark with Team Espia to try and win the Danish championship because that, that I never did. And uh, before I maybe will go out again, and I did that. That was the aim. Then you saw Esbjerg and, and Denmark maybe as a, like a, a stepping stone then towards something else. Yes, because I always wanted to win the Danish championship, but I never did with Holtebo. We got a silver medal 
and I could see that when Jesper Jensen called me that uh, I was interesting and I said, uh, okay, I will go home and win the Danish championship, but maybe I will go back out again. With Esbjerg then, was there any, any particular games or any periods of time that, that stand out to you? Ah, for sure, the, the gold medal. <laughs> we played so, so good handball that season and it was like an... It was a dream come true for a little Danish Sandra girl who started to play handball. Yeah. yeah, I think the national championship always uh, comes really close to, to your heart. Handball Denmark and the whole country is so big and it's incredible the, the standard in the leagues on both the men's and women's sides. It doesn't always show when it comes to European handball, but it's so, so tight from top to bottom in that top division. Yeah, yeah that's a big love for handball for Danish people and the history there is it's really nice. And that's why the championship medal really holds special to my heart. You were originally going to stay in Esbjerg a bit longer, right? But then was it already by the time you, you won the Danish championship confirmed that you were going to go to Brest or that was the following season? No, no, that was the, before I, I won the championship. I actually had to stay two more years in, in Esbjerg. But uh, when we were finished with the national team at the European championship in France, 18, it was a horrible, horrible championship for, for Denmark. And when I go uh, came back home with my sad family, I said I, that I needed to find a new way to push myself because also the Danish national team is something I'm really proud of. And my biggest dream is to win a medal with the national team. And I said, if I have to do this, I have to get even better as a, a goalkeeper and push myself as a person, but also as a handball player. So I need to find some new challenge. And then the press called. So I signed with them and of course I said to Jesper, I promise before I go, uh, we will be champions in the end of May. But it was a difficult, difficult decision and there was a lot of tears, but uh, I felt that I needed this to push myself. Did that add uh, an extra bit of pressure then? Because, you know, you talked about how important the Danish title was and there was basically, not saying your last chance ever, but your last chance with this current contract uh, before you were moving abroad. I mean, how much did that play on your mind? A lot. I think also that's why I was so relieved and so happy when the, the finished the last final and we could uh, cheer together for the for the gold medal because I felt a big, big, big pressure for these two finals we, we played. One thing because uh, I wanted it and I dreamed about it for so long and I thought that we deserved it, but also because I had to go. All these emotions, everything just collapsed in the end, but it was really happy that it was relief. And that's why I'm looking forward to go back to say hi to all the people in the club on Sunday. Yeah, nice. You talked about Denmark being such a, a proud thing for you as well. And I've been to all the championships over the recent years and, and felt the frustration that you and the, the team have gone through. And I mean, there's so much media scrutiny as well on the team. Was there, has there ever been a, a time where you felt truly happy in the national team? Or was <laughs> uh, you can laugh about it now because we laugh about it with the national team, or I do, that my family said they are looking forward to have one happy Christmas with me. <laughs> <laughs> because I always come back home a bit disappointed or a lot disappointed. Now I have uh, big dreams and I always set the bar high for my what I feel my team can accomplish at the championship. And I never go to a championship without thinking that, okay, this year, maybe this will be the year where we come, where I can go home with a medal. And it didn't uh, succeed yet, but it doesn't make me less proud. Proud, it just gives you some toughness because, as you say, there's a lot of media coverage for the Danish team and it's not always that funny after you fail and fail and fail. But we still keep fighting and now we were so <laughs> close uh, this December and even then it didn't happen. Does that give you hope though, uh, what happened in December? Because um, I mean, I've spoken to Jesper in the past and in the build-up to the championship and he talked about how important it was to let the players express themselves because it feels often there's a bit of tightness uh, and that the players, particularly the court players, can't express themselves in the way they want to. Uh, did you feel a bit of a change in that way uh, last December, at least before the bronze medal game? <laughs> at least before. Yes, I, but I think it was so clear, you know, I think we played totally different handball. 
it was uh, much more with speed and um, just loose and we play handball and the girls uh, had fun and we played really good handball. He did so many, I say it was so different from before and he didn't have so much time with us, Jesper. So uh, how we played handball and how we presented uh, the country and ourselves as a team, that makes me hoping even more for, for next December, yes. Now, going back a little bit, because I want to I get your perspective on, as you said, it, in Denmark, it's such a huge sport. Was handball always the number one for you? Or did you have any particular like role models growing up and, or maybe even goalkeepers who inspired you and, and made you want to be a handball goalkeeper? Uh, yes, I started handball, playing handball when I was two. So yes, handball has always been number one sport for me, but I also played uh, football. And I was also a football goalkeeper. So I think in the end, that's why I ended up as a goalkeeper in handball, because I wanted to be a playmaker. Okay. But I had my mother as a coach and she said, um, no, no, you have to be in the goal because you are the best there in this team when we were really young, you know? Yeah. But I thought it was more fun to make goals. <laughs> Goalkeepers always think they can play in the court. I mean, you probably still think it is. In training, do you often have to fill in on the wing, maybe in defense or something? And, and try to show? Yes, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so you said your mother was your coach. Is she one of the, the biggest helps along the way or had one of the biggest impacts on, on making you who you are? Yes, yeah, she was my coach until I was 14, around that age. For sure, she has a big impact uh, she always really pushed me to, how to say, to the edge, you know, that I always had to do my best and there was no like uh, slow days and I really had to, to work hard. And when I played the matches, it was uh, every ball counted. There was not mm. like uh, if, they, if I did a mistake, you know, that's okay. But I had to be focused all the time. And I think that pushed me to, to be a good goalkeeper in the young age also. I'm intrigued by something you said earlier about expressing yourself and particularly at that time in Larvik, because nowadays you are, I mean, you are, it's so fun to see you get in players' faces after big saves, for example. Yeah. It's a great thing. And I think we need to see more of it, but that wasn't always the case then, was it? No, I think I always showed emotions when I save, but not in the same way as, as now. And uh, that mm-hmm. I learned in, in Larvik a little bit from uh, Lena Rantala. She stopped her career the year I came to, to Larvik and then she was goalkeeper coach for me. And she really, uh, she, of course, she had um, exercises for me as a goalkeeper and the goal and technique, but she also really learned me about the mentally uh, game in the game for, mm-hmm. for a goalkeeper. And this really, I took to me and I could see the, the difference really shortly. And uh, she was right, of course. So what I learned from Lena Rantala really uh, shaped me now. The mental aspect is so important, but you you relish it. It's not something you're forcing. It's something that you that comes naturally to you now. Yeah, I don't force it at all. It just comes naturally. And I also, I don't think about it in the game that I have to react like this or this, but it's more in my own head, you know? And yeah, it comes naturally to me. Sometimes after I can be a little bit ashamed. (laughs) (laughs) If you have to watch some clips from our game before and then I see myself hitting in the floor to the defense or expressing my joy to the opponent or something, then I can Mm. be a film. But it's like this. It's the game in the game. And as a goalkeeper, you cannot make a hard tackle to somebody, but then you have to express yourself otherwise. Yeah, you can still get in their face after a save. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I think it's fantastic. So please uh, don't be ashamed of it. It's great. Are there any other kind of moments or games that particularly stand out to you? I think the first EHF Cup final win with Holstebor also really kickstarted the um, taste for international uh, wins because we were a small club and we were young and we didn't thought that we as a when you're young, you dream about it, but you don't really know if it will be realized, you know, later. Mm. But when we won with this young team, I think we all of us got a taste for in performing in the international level also. What was that season like? Because I know the EHF Cup as the, the second competition, it's not always the most glamorous. You know, the journeys aren't always the, the most fun and you might end up somewhere in the east of Europe with no fans watching. But it, I guess it builds character. Yes, and it, for sure it was the second best international league, but for us it was the biggest because, yeah, yeah we were in a small uh, club and with like a small budget and we performed over the level this season. 
So we were just following the wave, like enjoying every moment. And actually for the final, we we didn't fly to France. We had to take the bus from Holstebo oh. to, to Metz. We didn't care man. because we were going to, to play a final. And yeah. uh, I also like this kind of uh, thinking. And, and we had a really fun trip with the bus back home to, to Denmark after the final, of course. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, how much? Were, <laughs> what do you remember of the bus journey back? Yeah, it was really crazy. I remember we stopped at the first gas yeah. station and the president of this club just say, okay, girls, take what you want. And we empty the, the store completely. <laughs> and, and we didn't sleep at all. We were drinking all night and dancing with the trophy. And then when we came to Holstebo, we was a little bit in shock because the whole city was there to welcome us home. But we didn't sleep for <laughs> 20 yeah. hours and we were looking like shit, but it was funny. That's brilliant. And I've been to Holstebro. It's, uh, it's not much going on, but it's a great handball city. <laughs> uh, you've spoken a little bit about the trophies there, like the this EHF Cup and the, the Danish title uh, and the desire, the hunger to, to get a, a medal with Denmark. Without doubt, you are among the very best goalkeepers in the world and have been for the last few years. But do you feel like you need some international titles to go with that? No, I don't feel I I need to get titles to go with that. But I need to get titles for my own dreams. As as I said before, you know, the medals with the national team, uh, I I want that before I will stop thinking, uh, that before I will stop on the national team. I don't want to be on the national team for so many years without something uh, in my hands that we accomplished together. And also to, you know, bring back the Danish national team to, to the top before I, I go. And for myself, in the I want I want the Champions League trophy for sure. But I know it's uh, really difficult, but I will do my best to get it. My colleague did a, an interview in this same series. The first one is going to be with Kira Lazarov. And he waited 15 years to get a Champions League title. And he's Kirill Lazarov, which is crazy to, to think about. But you're still super young. Uh, you're 31. And also for a goalkeeper, longevity is is a, is a bit better when, than court players. Do you have a kind of a long-term plan still for, for your career? Yeah, but I don't really think so far ahead. That's how I'm thinking. You know, I'm enjoying the moment and... As long as I enjoy playing handball in that top level and my body can manage it, then I, um, I'm going to stay. Uh, I always said I want to play handball as long as I think it's fun. And right now I think it's fun and I hope I also think it's fun for, for many, many years. So I, I can do like a lasso of I hope I will not wait 15 years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, no. I think the Champions League trophy is every handball player's dream. And I, uh, it would be fun if you don't have to play in GR to get it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, very true. <laughs> That's fair enough. Well, I think um, I think you and and Brest have been uh, fantastic this season, uh, and I'm really excited to uh, to see how the rest of the season goes. It should be a, a really fun battle for the title this year. And yeah, fingers crossed for for you. It'd be great to see. First of all, getting to Budapest, and then we'll see what happens. Yes, exactly. But there's so many good teams this season. Yeah, it should be an exciting weekend. But I think we can leave it there. I mean, it's been fantastic. Very grateful for you to to open up like this and tell us all these stories. Good luck this weekend. Thank you. And uh, talk to you soon. Thanks, Sandra. Bye. Thank you very much, Sandra, for that chat. And we're sticking with Denmark now as we look at some terrible times for Danish coaches abroad. Uh, for some reason, in the last few weeks, three Danish coaches have lost their job in unusual circumstances. We had Jan Leslie, the CSK coach, being sacked uh, in the middle of last month, despite leading CSK to the quarterfinals of the Champions League in their first season. We had Kim Rasmussen sacked from the Montenegro women's national team right after leading them to the Olympic Games and beating Norway in one of the probably the biggest achievements in recent years for the team. And Lars Walter, the Danish coach of Azoti Pulavi in Poland, getting sacked without even knowing it while he was dealing with some health issues. So terrible times for Danish coaches. And uh, which of them outrages you most, Alex? You can't underestimate this Lars Walter story. Um, it, it really 
it's it's absolutely shocking. Um, no employee of any sort should be treated like this. So basically, he got COVID, um, but kind of recovered it from it, and then found out that he had kind of more intense post-COVID symptoms. So he ended up in hospital with no help from the club. So he was trying to get relay this information to the club, and the club basically didn't help him out. They didn't um, get a doctor for him. They didn't do anything. And I th- I'd say it is probably quite difficult for Lars. I don't know what level of Polish he has, but to yeah, basically f- find a place in the hospital, he had to kind of get a friend to refer him somewhere and basically ended up in, in hospital eventually with no help from the club. And still nothing from the club except for a text with a thumbs up during the three weeks where we, he had quite s- severe symptoms. Then he spent 10 days in the hospital in total. Um, he was released to go back to work. And he heard from a journalist that he had been sacked. So while he was in a really bad condition, the club decided to sack him. And I don't know why, because Azari Pulavi have actually had quite a good season they're they're currently sitting second in the league so basically completely ignored by a club and just dumped on the street in in the middle of poland while he was sick i i don't know whose decision it was i don't know who's responsible for this type of behavior but i I think lars is actually going to court for this and i wish him all the best I really do because uh, it's shocking treatment. Was yeah. it was it was it big news in Denmark? Um, so he broke the story to TV two. Um, so that that's that's where it came out. Uh, I think there was just general outrage. It wasn't the biggest story. Just shocking behavior by the club. Yeah, I mean, I hope, uh, as you said, I hope I hope he does, um, or I wish him all the best for the the court case as well. Because I mean, there's no way that is acceptable in any type of employment situation. And uh, for someone who'd been doing a good job with them, who's very experienced as well, I'm sure he'll get another job. And uh, I, I have no doubt that he will and he'll be OK in the long run. But I mean, I, I don't know if anyone will be any kind of neutral handball fan will have good feelings towards Azati Pulavi after that, because that's absolutely disgusting. The Kim Rabs- Rasmussen one now is one which, uh, I don't know, it's almost not surprising in a way the way things have gone with people sacking coaches nowadays it seems to have taken taken a bad leaf out of out of football's book to a certain degree i mean I, there must be something else going on behind the scenes there because it doesn't really make too much sense to me how you can give them give montenegro some other or the best result internationally that they've had in a long time and qualify them for the olympics and then a week i was at a week later he's uh, looking for a new job I think we'll have to have him on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm really intrigued to, to hear from him. And it's Bojana Popovic who's come in and taken uh, taken over now. And that's the second job that she's taken over now in the last couple of months because we, suddenly in the middle of the season, uh, Dragan Adšić, who has been Mr. Budicnost for the last, I don't know, decade or more, uh, he was replaced very suddenly by Bojana Popovic. And uh, and now uh, Kim Rasmussen also replaced by Bojana Popovic. So she's taken over all the gigs. Great to see a woman in positions like this in women's handball, but really dodgy circumstances, I think. And she, and she was one of the the coaching staff for Kim Rasmussen. And I always found it very interesting, particularly during the Olympic qualifiers, seeing the way they interacted, because she always seemed to be like at him, always like, I don't know, telling him, to do something or telling him he's wrong i don't know and he seemed to deal with it very very well and just kind of like got on with it i mean okay like she's the probably the expert and knows the players better than he would so uh, i'm sure he appreciated it but definitely not appreciating uh, being replaced in, in this matter having done something amazing bringing montenegro to the olympics and he won't get to uh, enjoy that because yeah, it's been uh, only a couple of months that he's been in charge, uh, done great things with the team and, and deserved better. Any lighter news? Any Anything good happen? Over the- yes. Li- <laughs> 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 yes, I got some lighter news. The, the beach handball Euro draw was made this morning. It's going to be in Bulgaria this summer on the 13th to the 18th of July. And 
18 women's teams, 19 men's teams. And just something on the, the men's group A has three-time champion Spain, last-time winners Denmark, and last-time silver medalist Norway all in the same group, which is uh, very tasty. A five-team group, a top three go through. So those three will probably go through, even though they'll be taking points off each other. Feel bad for the other two teams, though, Romania and Turkey, <laughs> uh, who are not going to have a good time uh, in that group. Tricky situation, uh delaying matches at each Euro if there's COVID you know <laughs> play for six different games in one day <laughs> yeah it, it is funny there's there's a lot of things planned becoming planned for that kind of July period um, and this one seems quite ambitious especially in Bulgaria I don't know what the rate is there yeah big beach bubble <laughs> that's what I'm envisioning it's just going to be one big like one bubble. Everyone has to be negative to get in, and then it's party time. <laughs> I know we've never done a field trip before, but I think I'm fancying the handball hour to go to Bulgaria for the beach handball euro. I, I could definitely do uh, daily podcasts from the beach handball euro. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, yeah. One of the countries gets COVID, then we can just the brass pros Irish team. You know, <laughs> <laughs> get sub in. <laughs> We're ready. We're ready for the call up. Yeah, just finally then, uh, European League, because I think that's really heating up as well. Uh, on the women's side, they've already confirmed the four teams that are going to be in the final tournament uh, over the weekend. Uh, I think it's a really nice lineup with Bayamari from Romania, Schofok from Hungary, Nantes from France, and Herning Ikast from Denmark. All four teams with some big name players that we'd know from like the Euro and the World Championships. Four teams that probably would do well in the Champions League going to be in that. And on the men's side, we have a quarterfinal lineup. And I just want to get your opinions here, guys, because we have Georgi against Protsk, which seems very open. And then it's like Germany versus the rest of the world. <laughs> so from, from Montpellier versus Berlin, Christianstad versus Magdeburg, and Tchaikovsky Medvedi versus Reinecker Leuven, do any of the non German teams have a chance, you think? Oh, well, the big game has to be Montpellier, Fuchs, Berlin. Yeah. Two yeah. of my favorite teams. Um, Montpellier are actually in really good form. They In France, again, not many games have been played recently over the last kind of month and a half, but Montpellier have been one of the teams that have just been playing well, even though they actually struggled a little bit against Cadet and Schaffhausen. And Fuchs Berlin on the other side, I think it was about two or three podcasts ago, I was like, okay, Fuchs Berlin are in such good form. This is, you know, Sievert has, you know, turned this team around. They're going to be, uh, we need to talk about them because they're doing something well. And then they've just lost a bunch of games and have been fairly poor, have dropped out of the Champions League spots in the Bundesliga. They played fivers, so um, it, w it wasn't too much of a challenge in, in that um, first round of knockout. But my, my gut says that Montpellier, have the biggest chance against uh, all of the German teams. That's that's quite obvious. But um, in terms of current form, Montpellier are playing very well. Fuchs Berlin are trending down. So I have Montpellier on this one. Yeah, not even out of the Champions League places, but out of the the European League places in the in the Bundesliga, they're below Bergerschahatsi, aren't they? At the moment, yeah. in seventh place, uh, which I imagine will change because Bergerschahatsi are playing against Kiel in their next game. So, and they're level on twenty seven points each, but. I'd, I'd imagine Fuchs will probably still finish in the top seven in the Bundesliga, but it it's, is definitely, it feels like a, a big step backwards. I think probably when they were playing well, everyone was thinking, oh God, we might have a, a whole influx of really young coaches now over the next few years. And everyone's like, nah, nah, you need, you need that experience maybe. So it'd be interesting to see what happens with him if he'll, I'd imagine they'll give him time, you know, because it is his first big job and everything like that. And with Stefan, Stefan Kretschmer in the, in, in the background and all that stuff, I think they're, they're quite, uh, progressive in their, in their thinking so i'd imagine they give them a lot, a lot more time but i'd imagine yeah going what alex says with the form in the french league they did lose against magdeburg didn't they in the european league and they struggled against cadet schaffhausen but i think cadet schaffhausen probably looked the best they've looked in a long long time but i'd imagine montpellier might might just might just shave it i think ryan ecker should easily go through and also magdeburg and then Giogi versus Plotsk, Alex's, Alex's favorite team versus everyone else's favorite, favorite team. The Gog seems to be the team that everyone loves at the moment. <laughs> and uh, Plotsk, uh, the roster that Alex is always raving about. <laughs> this is quite literally the litmus test for two 
complete polar opposite thinking yeah. or ways of thinking of uh, handball. You have Gyogi developing young players and like uh, creating national team players and then selling them off to Flensburg. And, and then you have <laughs> and then you have Potsku over the years have just like collected the relics from Champions League past 34, 35, 36 and uh, kind of given them one last hurrah. Which of those two teams and which of those two school, uh, schools of thinking are going to make it into the uh, the German and Montpellier party? I do want to say about Plotska, they've, they've gradually kind of, they're, they've sh- they're shifting away from that model. Um, the yeah. team they have now isn't quite the full of has-beens, except for Terzic, who's still uh, playing. <laughs> but um, I-, I was surprised that Plotska won against uh, sporting Lisbon but I really want Gayoge in that final four um, I think they're a great team they play great handball um, what they've struggled in the, the they probably haven't played as well as they have in the season in the European League primarily because of the different styles that they have to face so all of these young Danish players are just you know they're smashing up the Danish League because they know how to play against the Danish style, but they, they've talked about how, you know, it, it's about learning how other parts of Europe play and kind of counteracting that style. So uh, I, I want them. I really want them to win that. I also think that I was really surprised by Shikovsky Medvedi, who beat Neem. Um I, I wasn't quite expecting that. And I think, Brian, you, you might be underestimating them a little bit because they do have Kosorotov and Kiselev, the two guys who were really the top. Um, they drove that Russian team in the World Championship. And they've kind of come out of nowhere and become a decent team again because they were just, they were terrible for years. They were, they were definitely very impressive in certain parts. But I always just feel like, for whatever reason, Russian teams never seem to play well against... This is, this is completely unfounded now. This is the uninformed part of the uninformed handball hour. But uh, <laughs> that they never seem to play against the, the top Bundesliga teams well when it really counts, you know. So, I, I, yeah, that's just my own bias there coming into, that, coming into it. Because I think both them and CSKA men's team were, were really impressive for good, for good parts of the season. And also very entertaining to watch. Yeah, great to see Russian men's clubs back, like uh, really back in. It's a second tier competition, but uh, still very entertaining. So good news over there. So there you have it. Another episode of the Uniformed Handball Hour is done and dusted. Thank you from all of us here. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.